Uh, I speak as a former dentist who worked in general practice over 10 years. In fact, I, I can honestly say I have examined hundreds and hundreds of tongues. Personally, I've done that. I say, stick your tongue out. Let's have a little look at it. I've examined tongues in England, in Pakistan, in Scotland, Dundee, Glasgow, not many in Edinburgh, and also in Australia. In fact, you spend your career as a, des uh, as a dentist really wrestling with people's tongues as you try and work on their teeth. In fact, I have, I have, I have fought with boa constrictors as they've sat in people's mouths. Now, when you go for a checkup, your doctor and your dentist will say, well, stick out your tongue, let's look at your tongue. And the reason that they do that is because there are many medical conditions that affect the whole body that are actually kind of, you can see that in the appearance of the tongue. You can learn a great deal of a person's physical health by looking at the tongue. But Pastor James wants us to know that actually you can learn a lot about the spiritual health and condition of a person by examining their tongue. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, I want you to stick your tongue out with me and have a look at it in the light of what God has to say. So please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. And you'll find this on page 1,214, 1,214 in the church Bibles. Before we read, let's just ask for God's help again. O oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts, own it all, and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war, you have loved and purchased us, so make us yours forevermore, we ask this in Christ's precious name, amen. James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, 
sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is God's word. Well, this is obviously of great relevance to us all today, but did you notice the very specific application of verse 1? Not many of you should presume to be teachers. That's the main application that James wants to uh, write to these Christians scattered out from Jerusalem, probably by persecution, who are now forming new congregations in other places. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, James writes. Now, it is a surprising application because we've seen that James has such a high view of God's words. Um, so this, this look back at chapter 1 and verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The Christian is someone who's been brought, brought to spiritual life through God's word. We are word birthed. And then look at uh, verse 21. Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So the Christian is someone who is, has the word planted within them and he urges them to humbly accept it because this is the very means that God will use, them, uh, use to save them, to save them from hell to heaven. And as we see, saw uh, a few weeks ago, it's critical that this, this, that, that, uh, this word that was birthed in them, this word that was planted in them, um, should be done. Look at verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Word birthed, word planted, word done. That's the pattern we see in James. And so if God's word, if the Bible is that powerful, that God uses this, to, to bring people to spiritual life, that God uses this, if we humbly accept it, as a means to save our souls, then surely you'd think the application would be, we need more Bible teachers, we need more preachers, because this is such an amazing, powerful book. I certainly think that's what we need in Scotland and in Great Britain and Europe today. We need many more people who are willing to give themselves to preach and teach this word. That's why we have a ministry apprenticeship program here at Charlotte. We're trying to encourage people to consider uh, giving up sort of a regular paid job to consider gospel ministry, paid gospel ministry, to preach and teach God's words. But the whole of chapter 3 and 4 is basically telling us that we need the right sort of preachers and teachers. 
We need teachers, but James says in a very straight way to the people that he's writing to, not many of you should be teachers. Now, why does he say that? Well, as we read on in chapter 3 and 4, you don't have to read too much in between the lines to see that all is not particularly happy and healthy in some of these congregations. Have a look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Well, those are not good words to be said of churches, are they? Boasting, self-promotion, bitterness, and so unsurprisingly, you get conflict. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Brothers, do not slander one another. See, as always, James is writing out a loving concern, but knowing where things are at, he advises back in chapter 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. And he gives three reasons why that's the case. And I want us, as I said earlier, to examine our own tongues. Obviously, this is application to each one of us, but obviously it's specifically application to those who engaged in, in Bible teaching. Uh, those who are called to preach and teach God's Word, those who teach Sunday school, who run home groups and fellowship groups to our elders. We need to look at these three reasons uh, that warn of, of the dangers of, of jumping into uh, teaching ministry without thinking about these things. Firstly, now many of you should be teachers because you'll be judged with greater strictness. It says in verse 1. Not many should be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And there's a certain logic to this, isn't it? If you stand up and teach, this is what God's word says, and yet you yourself do not do it, you are more morally culpable, aren't you, than those who didn't know about it. You are more morally culpable. Increased knowledge means increasing accountability and responsibility. Jesus finished one of his parables with these sobering words, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. I think we as a congregation have been given much. So this goes to all of us, I believe. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The Bible's clear that uh, when we're Christians, we will not be judged for our sins. This is one of the joyful things we've been singing about already. Our sins have been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not judged for our sins. And yet the Bible does speak that we'll be judged for the quality of the work in which we engage in as we build up the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul writes and he says this, that we should be engaged in building on the foundation that is Christ with, with the things that are in line with the gospel. If we build uh, upon the church with things that build into the gospel, uh, that are in line with the gospel, 
that are, that are faithfully teach God's word will be building with like the good stuff, you know, gold and silver and precious stones. But actually, if we build uh, out of selfish ambition, if we uh, build with things not in line with the gospel, there is a day of fire as we pass through the judgment and those works will be like wood and hay that will just all be burnt up. And so, you know, you could be someone who's engaged in a ministry and a work, and you will be saved, but actually the sobering thing on that day is that there's not much evidence of your work because you've not built with the gospel, and you've not built with a life that commends the gospel. And, and it is a sobering, challenging reminder to us that those who are engaged in teaching God's word, those who are elders here, those who are... Uh, fellowship group leaders, those who are involved in Sunday school, those who preach here, we will be judged more strictly. Uh, we knew what the right stuff was. And if we don't build with it, then there's greater strictness in judgment. So that's the first reason that not many of you should be teachers. Secondly, the reason is given in verses 2 to 6, because when our tongues stumble, it causes great destruction. See, why is this issue of judgment such a big deal? Well, uh, verse 2, the NRV doesn't translate this word, but it's in the original text. For, for we all stumble in many ways. This is a big deal because we all sin. And I love the way that James includes himself in this. You notice that we, he's putting himself in there. We all stumble in many ways. And so we should think about that before we rush to be Bible teachers who will be judged more strictly because we all stumble in many ways, in many ways says James. And if you want any proof that we all stumble, well, just consider our speech and the way you use words. Verse 2, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. The most obvious proof that we have a sinful nature is just by observing the words that we use and that the way that we speak. How long would it take uh, for people to spend time with you, with me, before it dawned on them that you were a sinner? Would it take weeks? Would it take days? Or would it just take this day? Would it just take the next three hours to give adequate proof that we have a sinful nature? Have you ever been with someone who, whose speech never let them down? Uh, who has never had regret for what they've said? Well, such a person, according to James, is a perfect person, a complete person. Have you ever met someone like that? I have not met anybody like that yet. But you know what? James had met someone like that. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He'd grown up seeing Jesus speak. And James knew what it was like to be a whole perfect man because he could look at his brother, half-brother, Jesus. This is why we're so excited about Jesus. 
This is why we want to praise and glorify and worship Jesus. Because here is the one man who never sinned. And he never sinned in his speech. Have you ever considered this person Jesus Christ? If you're not a Christian here, I want to tell you, this person has absorbed our interest and our worship. And we believe that he is fully God and fully man. And one of the things that we, we see in him is his utter sinlessness. Have you ever met a person like that? Take a look at Jesus. Peter, who spent three years uh, as a disciple of Jesus, who lived up close to Jesus and saw him in all sorts of situations and conditions, all sorts of hardships and difficulties. This is his amazing eyewitness testimony. You find it in his letter uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He says this, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. That, that is such an extraordinary statement. No deceit was found in his mouth. Wow. And because he was sinless, he was able to be the substitute for sinful people. Because he's the sinful Savior, he was, he was able, and praise God, he was willing to be the substitute for sinful people with unclean lips like me and like you. It is a most wonderful thing. And... and, and Peter holds out Jesus as not only the, the, the perfect substitute in our place, but he also holds him out as the pattern that we should follow. And James would desire that they would, uh, as Christians, grow and mature to be complete, whole, integrated Christians. That is to be, to be more like Jesus, who was sinless in his speech. And because we sin with our speech. James wants to warn us that we can do great damage with our words. It is amazing to consider um, the impact of our words. This tiny little tongue, what it can do, what it can accomplish. And he gives three little illustrations, doesn't he? In, in verses um, 3 to uh, 6, 3 to 5. Uh, Think about a tiny little bit. Did you see the picture of that horse, the largest horse in Britain this past week? Stands sort of nine foot tall. An incredible horse. But you know what? You put a little bit in that horse's mouth and you make that huge, powerful creature do whatever you want. You can make it turn left and right. I think it's going to carry some big bass drums for the army. And they're going to be able to do whatever they want with this powerful horse. There's a tiny little bit in its mouth. Or consider a massive cruise ship that can carry over 6,000 people. And yet it is, it is moved about with a comparatively small little rudder. Well, in the same way, verse 5, the tongue is a small little member, and yet it makes great boasts, James says. And in some ways, it can rightly boast, don't you think, of its impact? Words shaped by our tongue can have a huge impact on the world. Just think about Winston Churchill in the Second World War. How uh, his words guided a parliament and a nation through the, the storms of the Second World War. But also the Second World War is a powerful illustration of the dangerous power of words. Just think about the impact of, of Adolf Hitler's uh, racist speeches. They were able to stir up hatred and fear 
and nationalism in Germany. The tongue can just bring terrible, devastating impact. And that's what James wants us to see here. Like the smallest spark in a dry forest, it can bring total devastation. When I was in America, uh, an expression that I heard uh, used every now and again was, don't drink the Kool-Aid. I was, what's this business about the Kool-Aid? Don't drink the Kool-Aid. And so I did some research about it. And it relates to an event that happened in 1978. It is a reference back to the terrible influence of a false Bible teacher, Jim Jones. He was a former disciple of Christ pastor who turned into a cult leader. And he ordered a mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana in 1978. He managed to get his followers to drink the Kool-Aid in which was laced terrible poison. That false teacher was directly responsible for the death of 913 people. The teacher's tongue can have devastating impact. But we know this. We know this on a much smaller scale, don't we? How many of us are still recalling words that were said to us decades ago that still haunt us? that still impact us. I've known many people who are still struggling as adults with the repeated lies of cruel and unloving parents. Just devastating impact on people's lives. Why is it that we so often regret saying the things we say? What is it about us that we can often hurt the people that we love with these tongues? Why is that? Well, the answer is in verse 6. Look at the character of the tongue. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Look how it's described in verse 8. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. See, all the sinful anti-God forces of the world have a spokesman in our mouths. Our tongues are the press secretaries of the world that rejects God. And the tongue is actively evil. It's like a fire. It is unpredictable and it's always ready to destroy and consume. How easily our tongues speak gossip, slander, innuendo, blasphemy, flattery, criticism. How quickly our tongues dive to those sort of words. And look at the extent of its influence. Uh, Verse 5, verse 6, it corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire. The tongue can pollute the rest of our lives. And it can impact the whole of our life. For its whole course, it can set the whole course of his life on fire. How often do we think to ourselves, why did I ever open my mouth? Why did I do that? Now, why is it like that? Well, look at the source of its problem. Again, in verse 6. It is itself set on fire by hell. The devil is always looking for opportunities to grab hold of control of this little tongue and make it say things 
that will thwart God's work in people's lives. Just think about what Jesus says to Peter. Do you remember uh, Peter, uh, after hearing that Jesus saying that he would have to go to the cross? Peter says, no, no, don't talk about like Jesus. Stop all this talk of, of, of suffering and sacrifice. And Jesus stops him and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The devil is quite happy to borrow your tongue and use it for his purposes. That's the second reason that not many of you should become teachers, because when teachers stumble, it causes great destruction. And remember the context of James? There was all sorts of bitterness and selfish ambition in these churches. And he's saying to them, look, in the state you're in, I don't think many of you should be teaching. It's going to cause great destruction. Thirdly, third reason, for no human being can tame the tongue. Verses 7 to 12. Look at verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. See the power of James's argument? He doesn't say, look, our tongues are capable of great evil, so we should all work jolly hard to uh, tame our tongues. And uh, No, he's not saying that. He's saying no human being can tame the tongue. It's amazing, really, isn't it? We can train and tame dolphins and killer whales to kind of jump and... Seals to do this. We can, we, we can train horses. We can train lions and tigers. We can train. You cannot train this pink and wobbly thing that sits in your mouth. No man can tame the tongue. So what should we do? Cut out the tongue? No. 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 Don't cut out your tongue. This is James' way of saying... We cannot control ourselves. These are such humbling verses. They've been humbling to me again this this past week. You know, as a Bible teacher and a preacher. But here's where many commentators quote the early church father, Augustine. This is what Augustine said a long time ago. James does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of men. Do you get that? He doesn't say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of men. So that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, the grace of God. You know, here is the great news of the gospel. That uh, sinless Savior who was the substitute for sinners, that if we turn to Him today and just confess that we are sinners in our speech, He can freely forgive us. He gives us His Holy Spirit to change us, to tame us, and to tame our tongues. Yes, our tongues can be set on fire by hell itself. But you know what? On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, what, 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 what's, what did they see? They saw like little tongues of fire, fire that came not from hell, but from heaven above each of the disciples. It was a symbol of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here is another fire 
that can touch and that can grace our tongues. And when we are filled with the Spirit, what are we going to be doing? Well, Acts 2 will show you and the rest of Acts will tell you. The Spirit comes and people speak boldly about the Lord Jesus Christ. They praise God, their Savior. They praise the Lord Jesus Christ and speak of Him. That is what a Spirit-filled life does. A uh, tongue of fire that comes by the Holy Spirit. And that is such a great encouragement for us today. See, this is our great need. This is our great need uh, in churches today that we have Spirit-empowered preachers of God's words. This is what we need. Oh, I've been praying that Fill me with your spirit today that I may speak your words, Lord. I can't do this. My my words, I can say the most awful things. Fill me with your spirit that I may preach and proclaim your word. But you know what? This is what this nation needs. It needs spirit-empowered Christian men and women who will have tongues tamed by the spirit. So instead of dripping poison, We are giving words that bring life. Instead of words of selfish ambition, we are are speaking words of humility. Instead of words that curse, we are speaking words of blessing. Words that will speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will point to our glorious God. This is the great need of this nation. That every member of this church, every Christian present here, would be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak these grace-filled words. Words, no man can tame the tongue. But God, by his Holy Spirit, can do that work in us. Isn't that wonderful? It gives me hope. It gives me great hope today. See, the lack of it will devastate lives and devastate churches, will it not? It is our desperate needs. And in a, in, a, in a country where there is such an absence of the gospel, what is the devil going to do to try and frustrate that? Where's the devil going to be busy? He's going to be busy in a church like this. Stirring up selfish ambition, pride, rivalry. He wants to cause quarrels and fights amongst us. That's what the devil wants to do, to neutralize the impact of a church that could proclaim the gospel. And so we need the Spirit of God freshly in each of our lives that God would occupy these lowly hearts, make them wholly His, that we may speak of His glory and the greatness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they may seem a little bit high and lofty at this point, so let's just bring it really back home to the uh, ground floor level of where we're at. And James gives us a very helpful test so that we can see where we're at. He wants us to know uh, whether we are spiritually mature or not. You ready for the test? You want to test yourself whether you're spiritually mature or not? Well, have a look at verse 9. The question is this, how will we speak to each other when this church time is over? Bigger test? That's test one, how are we going to speak to each other? Bigger test, when we go home, how are we going to speak of each other when we go home? That's what verse 9 says. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise 
and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Of course not. Neither can a salt spring produce water. See what he's saying? Bitter words spring from a bitter heart, a divided heart that's not loving Jesus. And that's what he sees going on in some of the churches that he's writing to. And so he says to them, not many of you should be teachers. What have we done today? We've sung some wonderful hymns to the praise and glory of God, haven't we? Did we mean them? I trust we did. Sounded like we did. But the real test is now, how are we going to speak to one another once the church is over? How are we going to speak about each other when we get home? Have you heard the phrase, the Sunday roast? Will people go home and roast the preacher and roast the other people that just talk nasty about the people they didn't like? What a, what, my friends, what is that a sign of? A sign of spiritual maturity? A sign of a life uh, subdued and being transformed by the Spirit? No, it's not. It speaks of an immature Christian, of an immature church. Uh, if actually afterwards all we do is spend time gossiping with one another or flattering one another or cursing others. This should not be, should it? It should not be. Well, how should we respond? Well, do you remember a few months ago we looked at the book of Isaiah? I don't think, well, no one in this room can really honestly read this passage and not feel convicted of their sin. So what do you do? Well, remember Isaiah. Remember his experience. He saw the holiness of God. He saw the glory of God. And what did he say? Woe is me. I'm a man undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And he just is absolutely devastated. And in that wonderful chapter in Isaiah 6, what happens? One of the angels flies to the altar, the place of sacrifice, and takes a coal from the altar and applies it to his lips. And God says, see, I've made you clean. What we need is day by day, fresh confession of our sin and fresh appropriation of the work of Christ. Woe is me. There's no hope. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for the sins of my speech. Thank you that you never spoke any wrong and your sinless life stands in my place. Thank you, Jesus. As when Isaiah experienced that, the Lord commissioned him to go and speak for him. Same with us. When we've experienced the forgiveness of God, he then goes and sends us to speak for him. So that's the starting place is to receive forgiveness. But there's more here, isn't there? We need to daily rely on God's Holy Spirit to tame our tongues. To ask him to change us to be more like Jesus. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what the Spirit will bring to our lives if we ask Him. What a wonderful gift we've been given in the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. Ask Him each day. Lord, bring that self-control, would you, in my life, please? I want to speak well of you and of Christ this day. The complete Christian is one whose tongue has been tamed by God's Holy Spirit. Now, 
I'm going to give you some practical help here. Uh, this is a bit daft, but I remembered it from a long time ago, so that's what I'm going to tell you. All right? Uh, I remember a friend of mine um, 20, 25 years ago telling me that he and his mates were convicted about how they were speaking about other people. And they noticed that people would sort of say something nice about someone, da-da, ba-da, 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 and then they would say, but. But. And so they decided they would help each other by calling it the devil's butt. Right? And as they were chatting away with each other, they gave each other permission that if one of them engaged in the sort of conversation that was beginning to sort of uh, slag off, gossip, say something nasty about someone who wasn't present, uh, and they would just get to the word but, they would all go, but, 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 but. The devil's butt, right? This is so ridiculous that you're going to remember it. The devil's butt. You're too mature for that. Okay. <laughs> well, can I suggest then something different then? Do you see that there's two options? There's the, there's, 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 there's the fire that can be set on fire by the fire of hell, or is fire that comes by the Holy Spirit. So maybe... When we get to the butt, instead of doing the butt, 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 butt dance, all right? Some of you are going to do that because you love it. Mature people are not. They're not going to do that. But instead, you might say, when they get to the butt, why don't you jump in and say, but isn't God amazing? But isn't God wonderful that he's, he's at work in their life? Instead of engaging in the cursing, why don't you help your friend out by engaging in praising? Well, that would be a great strategy, wouldn't it? We could really help each other. We could really help each other. Instead of cursing one another, we bless and praise God in our conversation. May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we come now and thank you for the honesty and the truth of your word. In truth, our tongues reveal our hearts and and often our speech reveal that we're not right with you. So again, we ask that you'd forgive us and cleanse us because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for those who are, are, are not Christians here today, I pray that you bring such conviction of sin that they'd want to come to Christ for the first time to confess their sins and to rely on him for his forgiveness. Father, please fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit that we may be those who praise you and edify one another. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.